Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we seek to become like Jesus and live for others. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays for one service at 10 a.m. Also, if you're looking for a place to celebrate Christmas, we welcome you to join us on December 24th for one of our Christmas Eve services at 11, 1, and 3 p.m. You can find more details about the day at waterstonechurch.org. We look forward to connecting with you. In doing this, Jesus put on display the divine humility and love of God who owed us nothing and yet gave us everything, even his very life, so that we might be brought back into perfect communion with him. As we seek to become like Jesus so that others may receive the message of the gospel, we remember his servant-like posture he took toward us who are lowly, and we pray that his spirit would be at work in us so that we might do the same. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. As a preacher, I don't know if there are like harder moments to come out of than something like that. We're like, well, hey, I got nothing. Like, it's just like we could all go home now. No one needs me. That was uh, everything we needed to hear this morning. Uh, thanks, Maddie and team, uh, for that. Um, yeah, excited to be with you today as we continue our series on the face of God. Um, I'm excited because this week I'm not sick like I was two weeks ago, and I didn't spill coffee on my pants like I did last week. So I am feeling like prime and ready to, yeah, it's the little things, you know? Just uh, really helps. Uh, this Advent season has been a little unique uh, for me and our family. Some of you know this and then others of you may not, but we are actually uh, about two to three weeks away from our due date of our second child uh, that we're expecting on December 23rd, a little boy. Uh, we're so excited, uh, but it kind of 
puts a little bit of a different spin on Christmas. Like as you're waiting and anticipating the birth of Jesus and Advent is all about waiting and longing and anticipation, uh, we've been feeling that in the, a different way in our home life. And a lot of that is like preparation and getting things ready. Steffi just finished her last final for school on Friday. I'm uh, preaching this weekend. And, and there's just kind of been this like hope of like, well, if we could get through this weekend, then, then whenever it comes after that is, is awesome. Uh, and great. And we, we always do this thing, always. We've had two kids. This is our second. Every time we have a kid, we decide we're going to renovate the house we're living in. So we're in the middle of that right now, too, for some reason. In fact, when Camden was born, uh, I tightened the last screw on the faucet of the bathroom we were reno- renovating and remodeling. And, uh, and we thought, okay, we've got three weeks left until the baby comes. We're great. All the house projects are done. Now we can get ready for the baby. And Steffi's water broke 20 minutes later. And we went to the hospital. So we're, we're really good at timing these sorts of things. Uh, so we've got a few things that we're still wrapping up. Uh, but all of this is, has been a season of anticipation and excitement. And, and just like, I, I, I can't wait. Uh, to see our little guy and uh, to see his face. And not that I'm like curious if he's going to be cute or not or any of that. Uh, but I just want to know what my little buddy is going to look like. and really excited for that. And it's, it's put me in this weird space as I've been preaching through Advent and preaching through some of the Christmas stories of, of just thinking of, of what that must have been like for, for Mary and Joseph as they waited for the birth of their son. And I'm not saying that I'm like, you know, the father of Jesus or anything. I'm not, I, you got to be careful with those comparisons. Uh, but it, it has put a little bit of a different spin this Advent season as we've just sat in, in this space of waiting. And it, it's put me also in a place of just wondering what it would have been like for, for Mary and Joseph to, to actually see the face of God in this baby uh, that they were holding in their arms as the song Maddie just showed. And, and if you think about it, Jesus has been represented in all sorts of images throughout history. Pop culture, art, renaissance. I mean, we are fascinated with what Jesus looked like. And there are many different representations. We all kind of have this question of what does God look like? In fact, I, I asked Polly, our tech director, to pull a couple of images of Jesus in, in different ways people have tried to represent what he looks like. So this is one I, I, I think is particularly interesting. It's, uh, it's rocket launcher Jesus. I don't know why. Like that's my only question is why. Why do we need this G.I. Joe Jesus? Uh, then we've got uh, superhero Jesus, like Jack's Jesus. For some reason Jesus needs to be Captain America because I don't know why. Uh, we've also got this depiction of Jesus, of a brown Jesus who maybe looks a little closer to what that part of the world was when he lived. We also have this view of Jesus. Hey guys, I just got bangs. Again, I don't know why. I don't know why, but it's because of the internet. I think we could all just blame the internet on this one. Uh, our graphic designer, when she pulled this picture, the title she gave this slide, and she's probably going to hate that I told you, she just called it Hot Jesus. <laughs> it's just like handsome Jesus. Uh, so we've got that image. And then has anyone seen this one before, this picture? Uh, it, it's supposedly a historically accurate rendering of what Jesus might have looked like. It's a depiction of what a Middle Eastern man from Judea around the time of Jesus may have looked like. Uh, and so there, there's all sorts of different images and representations of Jesus. And, and our fascination, our curiosity with what Jesus looks like goes beyond just physical appearance. In fact, I would say that, that most people in my life, they, they, Jesus almost has universal approval. Even my friends who are atheists and, and really dislike the church, 
they like Jesus. Almost no one has a bad thing to say about Jesus. But I think that's because we, we often kind of craft or, or make Jesus into our own image. We often craft or, or created Jesus who likes the same people that we like and probably doesn't like the same people that we don't like. And our Jesus usually votes the same way we, we vote, right? Like, we, we craft a Jesus who agrees with our worldviews and our ideologies and, and, and is comfortable to us because he looks like us. And then maybe not in physical appearance, but definitely in the way we believe and think and act and, and live our lives. Jesus would give us approval for that. And, and I, I find this a, a fascinating concept as we're talking about the, the face of Jesus. Because I, I think the truth is this. In, in some ways, Jesus looks exactly like us. And in other ways, Jesus looks nothing like us at all. One of the reasons I think it's so hard to get a handle on Jesus is, is because of this reality. That, that there are parts of Jesus we recognize within ourselves, and there are parts of Jesus we want to recognize ourselves within him. But yet he doesn't quite fit into the boxes or the images that we use to try to craft around who he is. And so today what I would like to do is, is take a look at the passage from Philippians 2 that Kat just read. Because if there is any place in Scripture, this is one of the high points. This is a 14er in Scripture. That's what Tim Keller said. This is a high point in Scripture of showing us who God is, what he is like in the person of Jesus. And so if you have Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Philippians 2. We're going to be there all day. If you don't have a Bible, you will find Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Um, and you can participate in what uh, Larry calls our Steal a Bible program. And so feel free to just grab one of those and take those home with you. But we'll be camping out in this passage all day um, and looking at, at Philippians 2. And so go ahead and we're going we're gonna to jump in now. Philippians 2 starting in verse 5 through 6. And it says this. And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, as we dive into this passage, one of the things, if you're looking at it on the screen or in the Bible in front of you, you'll notice that, that it's kind of this indented section of Philippians 2. It, it's kind of pulled apart. It looks more like poetry or a song, and that's because it, it likely is a hymn that Paul is quoting. It, it's Greek poetry or a hymn that Paul is quoting in this letter to the Philippians. And, and what we need to know about that is this. There are so many people who come to, to who is Jesus, and they have this idea in their heads that Jesus was some prophet or teacher or someone who came and showed up and taught people about how to love their enemies and, and love those who persecute you. And, and he was just a teacher. And then later on in church history, people decided, you know what, like maybe we should elevate him to the position of deity. Maybe Jesus should be God and that'll solidify our religion. And there's this kind of belief that the stories and legends of Jesus became embellished and they grew to the point where Jesus became a God. But it happened years and years and years after Jesus walked on the earth. And the reason why that is so important to understand about this hymn is, is Paul is writing this letter about 15 to maybe 30 years after Jesus lived, when he's writing this letter to Philippians. 
And, and as he's writing this letter, he is quoting that most scholars do not believe that, that Paul actually wrote these words. They believe he is quoting a hymn that has been in circulation around the church for years. And, and so he is giving them something that they will readily recognize to, to try to help them understand who Jesus is. And the reason that's so important for us to, to understand is that from the very beginning, it appears that the church had an understanding that Jesus was God. That, that when they looked at Jesus and when they saw his life and the way that he interacted with people and the miracles he performed and the way he conquered death and, and all of the things that he did while he was up, people came to the conclusion through watching a person who looked like you and me that there was something spectacular and remarkable about who he was. That, that he was no ordinary person, but that he himself was God. That Jesus is God. And, and the church has believed that from the very beginning. And in this passage, when Paul says that he took on, or that, that he was in the very nature of God, he, he's using a particular Greek word called morph. And you might actually hear that and say, actually, Paul, I don't think that's Greek. I think we have that one in English. And he'd be right. We, we have the, the, the word morph in our own language. But it, it kind of puts us on a, a particular path that takes us away from the meaning of what Paul was getting at. When we think of morph, we often think of, of outward appearance or changing our appearance, transforming, morphing in some sort of way. In fact, as a kid of the 90s, I hear the word morph and I immediately think of what? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, exactly. Yeah, you all knew it before I said it. And when you think of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which I just found out this week are 30 years old, if that makes you want to feel, yeah, yeah, I don't know what to do with that one. Uh, but if you think of the Morphin time, right, like all they did was change their outward appearance. They went from semi-normal high school kids to like people who were wearing spandex like argyle bodysuits, right? And then they just changed their outward appearance. That's what we think of when we hear morph. But that's not Paul's meaning at all. It's not that, that, that Jesus just appeared outwardly in some sort of way or that, that his, his form was God. Paul, when he uses the word morph, the, in the Greek it has this, this term that, that's substance, that the very essence of who Jesus is, the characteristics that made him who he was are the exact same characteristics and substance and essence that make God who he is. Paul is trying to make an incredibly powerful point. This is the most explicit statement in all of Scripture that Jesus is God. Not that Jesus is like God or, or that Jesus is sort of God, but, but that Jesus is actually God. He, he's not human with divine-like powers. Jesus himself is God. Which means that if we want to understand what God is like or what God looks like, then we need to look at the face of Jesus. Jesus is God and he reveals to us who God is and what he is like. There has never been a moment in time where God was not like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We have not always known what God looks like, but because we have seen Jesus, we know and understand who God is because Jesus has revealed that to us. Now, now you might hear that and think, yeah, Paul, this is kind of basic. Like, uh, I feel like that's kind of like one of the entry exam questions if we want to get to heaven is like, yeah, is Jesus God? And you have to say, yep. And then you like get in, right? Like it's basic. 
part of most of us churchgoers. But, but here's the problem with that. Is that we can hear a statement like Jesus is God and we can forget the incredible miracle. That the central point of the story we believe is that God became like one of us. And while it can be easy to breeze past a statement like Jesus is God, in some ways there, that, that statement is something we should never go beyond. We never get beyond the miracle that God chose to, to become one of us. That, that Jesus is God and revealed God to us shows us the depths that God was willing to go to, to, to rescue us. And Paul makes that point clear. He, he says that Jesus is God. He has the very nature of God. But, but he goes on to say that even though Jesus was equal to God and Jesus was God, he did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to. It, it was not something that he held on to or grasped. His equality with God, this divine nature of who he was, he considered it something that needed to be let go for your sake and for mine. That this position, this power, this privilege that Jesus had, he gave it up for you and for me. And that, in some ways, is, is radically different than anything you or I ever do. When we have position or privilege or power, those are the things that we don't want to let go of. I mean, all the way from when we're like elementary school kids and we don't want to let people cut in line to get ahead of us in the position that we're in. So maybe like me, when we're stuck in traffic and we see the person pulling on the shoulder of the road and driving past and you think, nope, nuh-uh, that's not, you don't deserve to get up there. And so I, this is confessional time, I sometimes, I'm one of those people who pulls out in front of them. I drive a truck, I can stop them. I, they don't need to get ahead of me. And then I probably shouldn't do that. But man, like, I, I don't want people to get ahead of me. And we do that in so many different ways in life. It's not just traffic, right? It's, it's the reason why we have this incessant desire for, for, for like a perfect home, perfect family, perfect kids. We want people to recognize that we are at the top of our game. And so much of our life is spent trying to climb the social ladder, the professional ladder. I mean, we want people to recognize that we are special. We are someone. We can achieve things. We're constantly in this space of trying to earn and, and grasp for the things in this world. And if someone tries to, to take those things from us, or have you ever tried to give up a position of power or influence that you've had, it's incredibly difficult to let go of those things. See, Jesus is nothing like you or I because he, he had everything and he made himself nothing. Jesus chose to let go of the power and privilege and position that he had. But we constantly strive to make ourselves something or someone worth admiring, worth looking at, worth praise, worth affirming. And Jesus took the opposite approach when he became one of us. Everything that he had, he chose to let go of and hold with an open hand. You see, Jesus considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but most days in our lives, we not only think that equality with God is something we need to grasp, but, but we actively try. to. It's the, the oldest temptation going all the way back to the, to the garden. Become like God. And we do this every time we choose to, to go against Scripture for the sake of our own happiness. 
Or every time we think, you know what, I, I know this is probably what God wants for me, or this is what he maybe says, but man, I really think that this is the way that I should go. See, every time we step into that space, every time we yell at our kids, every time we sleep with someone who's not our spouse, every time we, we ignore the poor, we, we are stepping into a space where we say, you know what, I think I know what's better. I know what's good for me. And, and though it might go against what God has called me to, I think I deserve to be equal to God. And we try to put ourselves in a position of authority over him, even though he is the one who has spoken the world into existence. You see, we have this, this desire within ourselves to, to try to grasp for the things of this world, to, to grasp the position that, that only is reserved for God. And yet God himself did not consider equality something to be grasped, but something to be let go of. He, he gave up his power and his position and his privilege. See, if we want to know what God is like, we look at the face of Jesus and we see a God who is willing to give up everything for you and for me. Paul goes on and in verse 7 and 8 he says this about Jesus and, and it reveals to us two things that I want to look at today the humanity and the humility of Christ and he says rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross See, Jesus is God, but he also became human. It's that, that same word. Jesus had the very nature, the very morph of God, but he took upon himself the, the very nature of a servant, of a human. Paul is saying Jesus, who is God, shares the very nature of God, also shares a nature with you and me. And we have to be so careful with the grammar here. It's not that, that Jesus was God and then became a human. It's that Jesus is God and also is human. That he has both natures within himself. And again, you might think, man, Paul, you are really covering the basics today. But we never get beyond this miracle. This is the central thing that takes place in Scripture. All of Scripture points to this moment where God became one of us. Jesus is God, and he is also a human like you and me. You know, at, at our house, we love to collect nativities. I feel like I just said that like that makes us special in some way. A lot of people like to collect nativities, right? But, but one thing that's always struck me about nativities is we, we actually have a few nativities that have come from all over the world. We have a, a nativity from Africa and from Asia. And, and here's the thing that, that kind of strikes me about different nativities. If you've ever seen a nativity from a different part of the world, what, what strikes me is that it always looks like the culture and the country and the people that that nativity comes from. In fact, we have a great example of that today. Out in our missions area, uh, we're, we have the Master Handicraft Nativity Set where some of our missionaries, they have uh, Muslims in Central Asia make nativity scenes uh, that they, so they can share the gospel with them in the form of a job that, that we sell those around Christmas time. But if you look at the nativity, it, Jesus is a little uh, a Dungan baby. He, he looks like a baby from Central Asia. And when you look at the, the Mary and Joseph, they look like they're in traditional Central Asian clothing. And, and the, the, the nativity isn't set in a cave or in a barn. It's set in a Central Asian hut in Europe. And 
to be honest with you, there, there was a time in my life where I, I kind of had a problem with, with that. Uh, I was in seminary. And if, if there's any, like, illustration of, like, kind of the, the silliness of seminary students is I got all up in arms one year because I was like, oh, my goodness, all these nativities, they all look like people from the different places where they're coming from. And everybody's just creating Jesus in their own image. And that's like, shows you a level of what seminary students get upset about. And I, I was on this, like, this high horse about this. And I was standing in the, um, the uh, professor's kitchen for a Christmas party. And I was kind of just like unloading this thought about oh, this frustration about nativities that look like they're from Africa or Central Asia or wherever. And I'll never forget this professor. He just like so clearly and quietly listened to me. And then just kind of when I was done with this rant, said, Paul, you're missing the whole point. Like, yeah, maybe those nativities aren't historically accurate. But they have a, a deeply embedded theological truth that, that, that Jesus became one of us. That, that God became one of us means that each and every one of us can identify with the face of God in the cultures and stories and histories that we come from. That, that Jesus became one of us means that when we look at one another, when we see each other, we see the face of God. Not only because we have been made in his image, but because God who created us in his image took on our image as his own. See, that's the miracle of Christmas and the incarnation. It is that the God who created us in his image took our image as his own. It's the whole point of Christmas is that God identifies with each and every one of us. That God knows what it's like to go through the things that we go through day in and day out. God identifies with us and it's when we see that that we begin to understand the nature of what God is like, not just that Jesus is God and that he had all of this position, power, and authority, and privilege, but that he chose to become like you and like me. And so if we want to know what God looks like, we have to go no further than looking at our neighbor and seeing the very image of God in them. That's the point of Christmas. And so we see the, the humanity of Jesus in this passage, but we also see the deep humility of Jesus in this passage. Just to read it again, to keep the scripture in front of you, 7 through 8 again says, Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul quite literally tells us that, that Jesus is God and that God made himself nothing. The, the word he uses here is that, that he emptied himself of everything. When, when Paul says Jesus made himself nothing, he, he's talking about a deep theological truth. Jesus emptied himself, not of his divinity, not that he was no longer divine. Jesus was still God. 
but, but he emptied himself of all the comforts of heaven, all of the, the position and power and privilege, all of the, the, the holiness that he experiences in heaven, all of the, the absence of sin and death and decay and destruction and all of the things that we see every day that, that he never had to be a part of. God chose to take those things on, to, to experience those things with us. Paul is making a, a deep point about the humility of God to, to take on the nature of a servant. To come as someone who wants to serve. He humbled himself and experienced all the things that, that you and I experience on a daily basis. This humility of Christ. You know, there are a few things in my life uh, that have humbled me like backpacking. And, uh, and actually, uh, this past weekend on Tuesday night, uh, we were at an elder Christmas party. The elders and some of the, the staff, we were together at Larry's house. And if that sounds like a wild time, let me assure you that the elder Christmas party is a good time. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but we finished the night with a devotional. Again, wild time. It's awesome. And, uh, and Beth Campbell, I, I don't know if she's here today or not, but she shared this devotional. Everything I'm about to say was inspired by her. It was this awesome devotional. She's an FCA leader who this past year went on a backpacking trip with some of her students. And it just got me thinking about all of the, like, challenges of backpacking. Anybody been on, like, a two- or three-day backpacking trip or even longer? Okay, we live in Colorado, so I hope a few hands are in the air. But there is nothing that has humbled me like the few times that I've gone backpacking for a few days. I mean, you are constantly wet. You, you realize how, like, incredibly insignificant and powerless you are against the forces of nature. Like, you can't keep yourself dry. You're sleeping under a tarp. Your sleeping bag is constantly wet. You walk through rivers and your socks are wet. You can't get those dry. You're covered in mosquito bites. You're, you're trying to just, like, basically survive. You're walking 15 miles a day with a 50-pound bag on your back and you realize like I'm not as strong as I thought like all of these things just like completely humble you and make you realize man I, I I'm so dependent this is what I realized about myself I am so dependent on, on like modern comforts for survival like, like I really need somebody else to make my clothes if I was stranded in the wilderness I would have no clue about how to keep myself warm right in fact, as a kid, I always had this dream of like maybe being one a person who's like stranded in the wilderness. Any any '90s kids remember the book Hatchet? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. Awesome book. I wanted that to happen to me. I had this like this wish that like yeah that'd be pretty cool if I just got like stranded in the middle of like the Alaskan wilderness and had to figure out how to su survive. I thought that until I watched a TV show called Alone, where, where people go into those places and try to survive as long as they can. And these are some of the people who have, like, trained for this, experienced this. They, they have, like, incredible skills. And they struggle. I realized so quickly I would die within a week. Like, I would not make it through any of this. I mean, I really need like a roof over my head to keep me dry. I like my warm bed. I want a freezer that has frozen pizza and ice cream that I can get out whenever I want. Like electricity is awesome. Running water, great. Big fan. Like I need all of those things. And it's this humbling experience when you realize I am so dependent on things that I have no control over just to like get through my day. It's so humbling. And Beth made the comparison that in, in some way, that's a, like a small, small glimpse of what the incarnation must have been like. Like when you and I go outside, it's a different game than when we're, when we're inside. But for Jesus, he came from, from heaven, from, from eternal life to a, a place of death. 
He, he came from a place of absolute holiness to a space that's, that's covered in sin and death and decay and, and all of the things that we experience. See, that, that, that God became man, that God became one of us, means that Jesus knows what it's like to experience bug bites and blisters. That, that Jesus knows what it's like to have a stomachache, to, to be tired from exhaustion. I mean, all of the things that, that God would never have to experience, he chose to step in to human history and, and to step in to, to a place of pain and, and suffering and darkness in order to bring us to the light and, and so that we can experience him. See, he came from glory to humility. He came from praise to pain. He came from equality to emptiness. He came from lordship to servanthood. And he came from eternal life to death on a cross. He, he counted you and I as more significant than himself. And he chose your interests and my interests over his own. You see, when, when Paul says that, that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death and death on a cross, he experienced the worst things that this world has to offer. The, the worst pain, the worst suffering, the, the worst day of our lives, he took upon himself. Because he counted you and I worth it so that we could experience the goodness and glory of life with him. And as I've just been thinking about that uh, this past week, it, it's, it's hard not to think about this idea of, of Jesus absolutely emptying himself for you and me uh, around a time where we celebrate the fact that he emptied himself by trying to fill ourselves with as many things as we possibly can, right? Like the, the irony of that. Well, whether that's presents or eggnog, this season tends to be something that we are just constantly grasping and trying to fill ourselves with. It's, it's a time where we have so much expectation for, for what this time of year should look like. And, and all of it is based on our preferences, our interests, the things that we want, the things that we think we need, our desires. And, and Paul begins this exposition of who Jesus is by saying, have the same mindset in your communities as Jesus Christ had himself. Which means that, that if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to know what Jesus is like, if we want to see the face of God, then we should become a people who take on the nature of a servant. That we should become a people who, who humble ourselves. And it just got me thinking, what would this holiday season look like for you and your family? If rather than thinking about all of the expectations you have and trying to meet your expectations, our goal as a community this year was to, to, to step into that space where we become like Christ, where we take on the nature of a servant, where we let go of our expectations and we seek to serve and love those around us. What if all of the expectations you have about Christmas morning or about the, the dinner with your relatives later, what if it wasn't about what you wanted, but you maybe gave preference to your crazy uncle who always says stuff that you wish that he would just be silent? Like, what if we made space for the, the people in our lives to experience the goodness of what it means to encounter the face of Jesus through our servanthood, through the laying down of our preferences and our interests? so that we could point people to the one who laid down everything for 
us. You see, the story of Christmas and what Paul is saying in this passage is that the God who made everything made himself nothing for you and for me. And if we want to know that God, if we want to experience life with him, then we should take on that same mindset for ourselves. So what would it look like for us to to take on that image of Christ this Christmas? So Paul says that Jesus, who is God, he, he reveals the glory and the nature of God through his humanity and through his humility. And it's because of his humanity and his humility that, that Paul ends this section. He, he quotes this hymn by, by telling us about the exaltation of Christ. Christ lifted high. This is what he says to finish this hymn. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place because he has gone so low, because he has humbled himself so much, because he has emptied himself so much. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. You see, Paul says that Jesus is God and he reveals the glory of God through his humanity and through his humility, but it is because of those things that God exalted him to the highest places. What the face of God reveals to us in Jesus is that God is worthy of praise and exaltation, that God is deserving of everything that we have to give him because he was willing to go so low. That there is no depths Jesus was not willing to dive to reconcile the world to himself. That, that Jesus who made everything became nothing. And therefore he deserves to be exalted above everyone. See, there's a story, in, and actually it's found in each of the four Gospels, that, that I think depicts this idea of, of Jesus making himself low and deserving to be exalted. And it's actually one of the only stories that's recorded in all four Gospels. And you probably remember the story. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house, one of the religious elitists, one of the people who, who really thinks they have a handle on what God is like and what God looks like. And they invite Jesus to come over for dinner. And as they're sitting at dinner and they're having a discussion, uh, a woman walks in weeping. I mean, she has just completely and utterly lost it. And she walks straight over to Jesus and she has this expensive jar of perfume with her. And she takes that jar and she breaks it and she pours this expensive perfume all over the feet of Jesus. And you've got to imagine the scene. I mean, we, we all have the uncle that I mentioned who says stuff that everybody doesn't know how to respond to. What, what do you do when a woman who's weeping comes and kneels at the feet of a person during dinner? And pours perfume all over their feet. Can you imagine the disruption? She goes one step further. She begins to, 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 to allow her tears to wash and bathe his feet. And then she uses her hair to dry his feet that she has just washed. And she kisses his feet in, in praise and declaring that he is one who is worthy. Do you remember the response from the people in the room? There's two crowds in the room in two different ways people respond. One, the Pharisee, he sees this whole scene plays out. And, and in his mind, he begins to say, like, oh, my goodness. It, it, doesn't Jesus know what a sinful person she is? And then he says, if he only knew 
her reputation, if he only knew her sin, there's no way that he would ever let her touch him. See, he missed the whole point of why Jesus came. That, that we sinners who had been separated from God from the very beginning of the fall, who, who had been distant from God, who had been reaching and grasping and trying to, to get to God, Jesus simply came down and allowed people to touch him and experience life with him, to, to touch his feet, to see his face. See, the, the Pharisee missed the whole point of it, that, that the incarnation is about the fact that the face of God has allowed us to touch him. But then the disciples, they have an interesting reaction too. They see this woman pointed out, and it's actually funny, and in each of the gospels it says that, that all of the disciples were indignant or they were frustrated, like how could this woman like, like do this, and, and what was Jesus doing allowing her to pour out this expensive perfume on him? And then by the time he gets to the last gospel, John, they're like, yeah, it was Judas. Judas is the one who did it. And they like name him, and they just kind of like throw him under the bus. But there's this whole reaction of like, Jesus, you, you, how could you let someone like give you that much praise and exaltation? How could you allow someone to spend that much expense for you? You see, they also missed it. See, Jesus, because he allows sinners to touch him and to, to see his face, he is worthy of all things. He, he is worthy of everything we have to give, every offering, every talent, every gift, everything that we have within us is all to be poured out at his feet because he is the one who has made a way for us to be with him. That he deserves all exaltation and praise. We are going to move now into a time of worship where we are going to sing the name of Jesus that is worthy of all praise and adoration, everything that we have. I would invite you now to stand, and wherever you are at, whatever space that you are in, I would invite you to come to a place offering Jesus your uttermost worship and devotion because he is the one who is exalted above every other name. Would you please sing with us now? <laughs>